last weekend I graduated from theological college. I've um, been ordained for well over a year now, but I've only just got my theological degree. It's not my first degree. Uh, My first degree was in law. uh, And at my graduation ceremony there, we were told, you know, go for your dreams, achieve all that you can do, live your life as you want it to be, and get it. My next graduation was um, from the Middle Temple. I trained to be a barrister. Um, And again, the graduation ceremony there was very much, you know, up and at them. Come on, go and get it. Get what you want. Go and fight for it. You know, it's a bit more sort of, you know, live up to the honor of your calling. Um, But those undertones uh, were definitely there underneath. The ceremony at Oak Hill Theological College was, you'll be um, unsurprised to hear, quite different. But what was it that we were told? What do you think that new ministers of the gospel need to hear more than anything else? Well, obviously, there was talk about the gospel. There were three talks at the ceremony, and all of them pressed upon us the importance of going and telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. You'll be glad to hear that. But the college principal had a very powerful way of putting this. The college principal spoke about fear. Fear grips our society. From fear about a difficult job situation, maybe coming up on Tuesday, to fear about whether you even have a job tomorrow, to fear about terrorism, fear about Brexit, health, house prices, fear about the next American president, overwhelming fear is all around us. And I wonder if this fear comes from living in a culture and a generation that is just far too used um, to getting its own way with things going as planned. We have great wealth, we have great resources, and so we almost have a sense of entitlement to the life that we want. So it's no surprise that the threat of something getting in the way of that produces in us a paralyzing fear. We're afraid things might not go as we want them to. And the principal went on to say that our society has in fact lost the only fear that makes sense, and that is a fear of God. A fear that carries us through to an experience of love that casts out all fear. Knowing God. Trusting God. This is the only answer to the fears that cripple us. And yet, even Christians, even those who alone can know the true fear of God as we come to God through Jesus Christ, even we find ourselves worried about the future find ourselves frustrated in the present. We find ourselves discontented about the past. We let bad fears back in. And in fact, not only do do those things that I've just mentioned make our lives difficult, they do, but they are, in fact, in the words of someone else, respectable sins. That is, they are ways of offending against God that we have just come to tolerate. And I should say, um, this sermon this evening was prompted by a course we did at at my own church, at Grace Church Highlands, that meets in Enfield in North London. Um, We did a course looking through a book by a guy called Jerry Bridges. The book was called Respectable Sins. Um, And I did the session on worry, frustration, and discontentment. And I thought that given the prevalence of fear around us in our society, given that the strength of our witness is greatly increased when we show that the fear of God casts out all fear, I thought that's what I preached to you about tonight. Facing down these three respectable sins. So how do we do it? How do we face down these sinful fears? Well, it's, it's my theory that they arise from the wrong belief 
that we find in our hearts that God might make mistakes. Worry, the fear that God might make a mistake in the future. Frustration, the fear that God is making a mistake in the present. Discontentment, a fear that God has made a mistake somewhere in my past. And so in order to face down these fears, in order to kill these respectable sins, we need to bring this simple but powerful truth to bear in our lives. God never makes mistakes. God never makes mistakes. And one place in the Bible that I think is really helpful at getting us thinking rightly about this is Psalm 139. So please make sure you've got Psalm 139 open in front of you. We'll be going through it. And we're going to start by by going through this psalm and seeing, um, particularly we're going to sort of land on verse 16 and spend a bit more time thinking about that. But we're going to see, firstly, God never makes mistakes. Then we're going to see three ways in which we think that we know better. And then thirdly, we're going to revisit the fact that God really never makes mistakes. So, God never makes mistakes. Psalm 139. We're actually going to begin at the end. Look at verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist wants what we should want, to get rid of any offensive way in us, to get rid of our anxious, fearful thoughts. Even thoughts of uncertainty about what God is doing. How is it done? Well, he's put it at the end because he's just spent a whole psalm considering who God is and what God is like. So, verses 1 to 6. Quite simply, these tell us that God is all-knowing. God knows everything perfectly, but limitation. He knows every single thought, every single intention David says every possible aspect of his life is exhaustively known to the living God. God's knowledge, you'll see in verse 4, isn't even limited by time. God knows everything even before it happens. And the thing is, the way God knows is that God knows everything all at once. You and I, when we start to know something, we have to add bits of knowledge. I learn this thing and then I learn that thing, one thing after another, But God doesn't know like that. God knows everything perfectly from eternity. Every fact, every thought, every word we have spoken or ever will speak, every single atom in the universe, God knows comprehensively. Verse 5, this knowledge envelops us and surrounds us. Verse 6, What is our understanding compared with his? His way of knowing, let alone the stuff that he knows, is just on a different plane of existence. God is all-knowing. And yet, did you see how personal this is for the psalmist? Yes, we can learn a lot about God's knowledge as a divine attribute from these works, from these words, sorry, but these words are so much more than just doctrinal fodder. They are hugely intimate. The psalmist, God's servant, finds the deepest security and protection in his meditation on God's omniscience. Reassurance and peace rather than fear. 
So I ask you this, can God make mistakes? Can this God of perfect, exhaustive knowledge, who knows his covenant people infinitely better than they know themselves, can this God really get something wrong and mess it up? If you're going to accuse someone of a mistake, then you need to know more than they do. And God knows everything, everywhere, at every time, perfectly. To accuse this God of making mistakes, well, that's more laughable than a one-year-old trying to tell Einstein what E really equals. God knows all things. Secondly, verses 7 to 12, God is all-present. God is not limited by space. It's not like there's a a bit of God here and a a, a bit of God over there, or perhaps whilst I'm in this place over here, God isn't with me. We won't see him. It says in verse 7, he is spirit. But just as his knowledge envelops us, so does his presence. There is nowhere where he is not. And it's not even as though he's just very big. And, you know, there's a bit of him over here and a bit bit of him over there. He is spirit. All of him is present to each and every single point of time and space. Look at verse 8 and verse 9. See again what personal comfort this brings to God's people. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, God will be there, surrounding me, holding my every move. No matter how dark your situation or how lonely you feel, Christian, God's loving presence is with you. Nothing can be hidden from him. And so I ask you again, can an ever-present God ever find anything inaccessible? Can he really make a mistake? Let's pause for a moment and just think, what must this God be like His knowledge extends to everything, past, present, future, all at once. His presence is everywhere, all at once. He is outside time and space. He is God and we are not. He lacks nothing. He is limited by nothing. He is simply perfect. God is not just a bigger version of you and me. God is in a category. He is a category, all of his own. And the word that theologians use to describe this is transcendence. This perfect God is above and beyond anything this creation can comprehend. And because of this transcendence, he can be and is intimately involved with every aspect of his creation. Nobody apart from this holy other, totally transcendent God can be as near in covenantal intimacy as scripture tells us that he is. And then in verses 13 to 16, we see that it is because he is the creator that he is so involved. He's involved in every detail of the universe, every molecule of existence, because he made it all. God is involved in every detail of our lives because he brought every detail of our lives together. You and I are not random collections of neurochemical reactions But from the formation in the womb to every single day of our lives, God is doing a deliberate, creative work. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, 
When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And when the psalmist says then that God is so involved that he even ordains our days, they are written out in his book, don't think of it like we might move a chess piece around on a board. That's just one bit of creation moving another bit of creation around. God is involved as the creator. He is not part of this universe. He isn't involved in things like we are. And for the Christian, this is not scary. Notice that this is a psalm for one of God's servants as it's a song of real comfort. In fact, the psalmist praises God, verse 14, for this reality. There is purpose to his life. There is shape to his existence. There is joy in knowing, as someone else has said, that not one stray molecule exists in this universe outside God's sovereign hand. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The days of our lives aren't ruled by chance or human desires, but ultimately come as they do because they are written thus in God's book. God never makes mistakes. God is sovereign over all creation, and ultimately, this is saying, nothing happens without his say-so. And we could multiply verses throughout God's word to this effect. Here's one from the Old Testament, Isaiah 46. I am God, and there is none like me. I have made known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. And again in the New Testament, perhaps Ephesians 1, we are told that God works out all things according to the purpose of his will. I should say that what this doesn't say, this idea that God is sovereign over all things, that this is an excuse for sin. This teaching is actually a spur to holiness, to proper living. There are things that happen of which God morally disapproves. The Bible teaches both that God ordains all days and also that humans are morally responsible. We might not understand how both those things work together, but that's because we're not God, so don't worry about it. Notice that it doesn't bother the psalmist. Look at verses 19 through to 22. God has ordained every single one of this psalmist's days, and, and yet here is evil, here is wicked. He, he doesn't see a belief in God's sovereignty as something cancelling out prayer, imprecatory prayer, that God would act to protect the psalmist. So the point is this. God's covenant people must accept this liberating truth God never makes mistakes. He has the whole world in his hands and every single detail of your life, every single day is his, written in his book. And you might well be sat there, you know, looking at me thinking, you're a young guy. What do you know? This trips lightly off your tongue, doesn't it? God is sovereign over all things. God never makes mistakes. And, you know, it's true. I don't know every single hardship going. There are many ways in which I've been blessed in my life and I have not understood so many heartaches that you out there no doubt have experienced. And I'm not going to rehearse a litany of heartaches and bereavements in my own life, save to tell you this one. In two days' time, it will be the first anniversary of my daughter Tilly's death. 
In two days' time, it will be one year exactly since I watched her stop breathing. Many of you prayed very faithfully and passionately for my family during the troubled three years of her life. And so I hope you know that I am anything but flippant or youthly naive in saying that God never makes mistakes. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Do I know God's purpose? Do I know the reason why? No. Do I stop asking why? No. Do I think God made a mistake? This psalm won't let me. I'm not the all-knowing, all-present, all-loving, all-good creator God who made all things. Only he has the final picture. And if this blows your mind, the idea that God ordains all these days, well then that's probably quite a good thing. You've probably understood what the psalm has said so far. Look at verses 17 and 18. How vast is the sum of God's thoughts? Were I to number them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. This blows the psalmist's mind. He doesn't sort of say, how does this work out? He just rejoices that he has a God like this. And then when I am awake, at the start of every day, God is already there and he never makes mistakes. However, often, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we think that we know better. Now, you might say, no, that's not true, Chris. I know my catechism. I know about God's decrees. I can tell you that God's decrees are his eternal purpose, whereby, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That might trot off your tongue because you've been saying it for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Great. It's good to learn that. It's good to know it. But let me ask you this. Do you ever get anxious about your future? Do you ever worry about whether you'll be able to afford a house or a holiday? Or worry while you're waiting for the doctor's phone call about that blood test or MRI? Do you worry about your children's futures? What about this? Do you ever get really frustrated when things aren't going your own way in your day? When someone else is stuffed up again, do you ever get frustrated? Do you ever get angry or impatient? What about this? Do you ever grumble that your life has not turned out the way you hoped it would? Do you ever envy or think badly about the fact that someone else has a spouse or a family or a house that you really wish that you had? Are you afraid that you've missed out? At each point there, if you answer yes, your heart has ruled your head and convinced you that God might actually make mistakes. So let's apply this truth that God never makes mistakes to those three areas and face down those respectable sins in turn. Worry, frustration, and discontentment. Let's think first about worry or anxiety. Why is it a sin? Well, that's a good question. Let me just turn to Matthew 6, where Jesus tells us just why worry is such a problem. I'm going to read from Matthew 6, verse 25. It's on page 971 of the church Bibles. You don't need to turn to it. I'm going to read it. But 
Here we go. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? And then at the end of the passage, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Notice that Jesus is giving us a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, a nice idea. It's a command. And the reason? The Christian's heavenly father has sorted all of the details of tomorrow and he never makes mistakes. Whatever is happening in your life tomorrow, God already knows about it. And he is already working for your good. And the good that God has ordained for you might be difficult to understand. You might not see quite how it is good for us, but we need to trust God. I know you need to remember that God doesn't give commands on a whim. He doesn't do it because it's just, you know, something he fancies doing. He gives commands like this because they're good for us. When we worry about tomorrow, we use today's energy. We use today's focus. And then we've lost today and tomorrow is still going to be tomorrow. What's the good in that? And basically, we, we worry about tomorrow when we forget that God never makes mistakes. We worry that what we want to happen might not come about. But God cares too much to share your agenda. He already has a plan for that conversation with your friend or the job interview or the medical consultation that you have. I don't know what lies ahead in your Mondays, but God does. And God has written it out. And he doesn't make mistakes. Now, what I should say is that knowing tomorrow is a day that's already written doesn't mean that you just, you know, you can't feel apprehension about what's coming. I've, you know, managed to live all of my life up until the last month with really good teeth. Never had a problem with my teeth. Been very proud of them, actually. And then about a month ago, um, my wife decided in a flurry of baking to make some homemade biscuits. They were a little bit hard. Took a bite into a biscuit and split part of my tooth off. And so there I was, having my first filling. It was, it was, it was, it was a heartbreaking day, I'll be honest with you. And so there I was in the dentist's chair, and, and she was stood there testing the drill. And I have to tell you, I was, I was pretty worried. Not because I didn't know what was going to happen, not because I thought that something might happen that wouldn't. I knew exactly what was coming. And I've got to say, I don't think the fact that I wasn't looking forward to the dentist drilling into my face, I don't think I was questioning God's sovereignty by not looking forward to it. That, that's not what this is saying. And, and on an ultimate level, on a far more serious note, the Lord Jesus knew that the cross lay ahead of him. That he sweat drops of blood in the garden didn't mean that he was worrying in, in this kind of sinful way. He was sweating drops of blood as he anticipated facing his father's wrath. No, we sin when we doubt that God is active in tomorrow for our good. And perhaps it it doesn't even bear saying that the answer to this is to say, I have no control over tomorrow, so I'm going to pray to the one who does. Philippians 4, do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the answer might not be the thing that you wanted. It will be something much better. It will be the peace of God, which passes your understanding, the peace that God never makes mistakes. So that's worry. And, and I spent the most time on that because I think that's the one that can really kind of cripple us 
and scare us about what lies ahead. God doesn't make mistakes and he's already in tomorrow. So very briefly, what about frustration? Well, I should say that, you know, having a sense of indignation at sin and injustice isn't a bad thing. That kind of frustration, as it were, Jesus showed it when he flipped over the tables in the temple. It's not a bad thing to think that sin, to think that injustice is wrong. The frustration, I think, that is is sinful is when we think in the moment God is making a mistake and we show impatience, we show anger towards other people because other people have mucked up. Jerry Bridges, the guy who wrote the book, Respectable Sins, used the example of a photocopier running out of ink just before a deadline. Swearing, effing and blinding because of that isn't a good thing. We shouldn't get frustrated like that. That kind of impatience is not part of a fruitful Christian life. And here's the application as I was thinking about this for me. Driving is a bit weak spot for me. I wonder if it is for you. Maybe it's just me. Um, but do you ever find yourself wishing all manner of evil upon that person who did not move when the light turned green? Just me? Well, I mean, I thought I was a really good, patient, careful driver. And I, I mean really good. You know, like one of the really good, like they'd film me and like teach other drivers because I was such a patient driver. And then I learned something quite painful about myself when I started driving in a vicar's dog collar. And in fact, I learned two very painful things about myself. Firstly, I'm not a shining example of virtuous driving. I'm an impatient, angry person who's convinced that everyone is there to get in my way. And the reason why I learned that is the second painful thing is that I'm a raging hypocrite. I mean, I drive very differently when I've got my dog collar on. You know, none of this. It's my, bless you, yeah, as they drive past. Um, but we're not doing hypocrisy today, so <laughs> let's move on. Um, now, this might seem trivial, this frustration thing. Um, what's a bit of impatience here or there? And, and, okay, fair enough. But actually, no sin is trivial to God. And actually, this is far more important. Do we live consistently with a big, massive biblical view of God? Next time you're caught out by a red light because someone else hasn't moved, don't think that that catches God by mistake. He is that involved in every detail of your life. Finally, discontentment. When we're content, we know that whatever we have, it comes from God's hand. And we don't look around wanting what others have. And contentment isn't an optional extra for the super Christian. Paul says, I have learned to be content. It's something that we should aim for. And it's a massive topic. And of course, I'm not going to be able to cover it barely at all now. We're going to scratch the surface. What I want to do is use the truth that we've looked at, that God never makes mistakes to stop us being what-ifers. Do you know what a what-ifer is? A what-ifer looks back, asks, what if, and wishes that God had done things differently and is afraid that they're missing out. What if I hadn't made that decision? What if that person hadn't said or done that? What if I had their looks or their talent or their education? What if the scan was different? But as Christians, we can't do this. Our circumstances are what they are. We have what we have because every one of our days is written. And God never makes mistakes. It's not because God has messed up that you are where you are. Now, the vital thing to repeat is sin is not excused. People who have sinned against you, 
you might have sinned against people. That is not excused by this truth. And this is that mystery. God writes our days. We're responsible for our sin. His ways are higher than ours. We can't figure it out. All I'm saying in this is that in bringing us to this point in our lives, wherever that is for you, God did not mess up. And I almost feel silly saying this, but, you know, people can take this the wrong way. Saying we need to be content doesn't mean that we're not diligent in the here and now. You know, put it simply, if you've got a headache, take paracetamol. (laughs) Or whatever, you know, I'm not a pharmacist, I can't give you medical advice. Take whatever appropriate headache medication you're allowed to take. Don't think that you're practicing Christian contentment by stoically putting up with something you can change. No, the sin of discontentment comes when we grumble and when we're bitter in soul about the way things just are. Don't be a what-ifer. Trust in the God who never makes mistakes. And in fact, just one more point on this thing about contentment. I, I don't know the circumstances of many of you. When I um, spoke to my own congregation about this, I knew that looking out, there were serious long-term medical problems, financial issues, employment issues, relationship breakdown, lots and lots of things. And, and what I wanted to say, and I say to you, is that the command to be content does not rule out lament. Okay? The command to be content does not rule out lament. You might be holding on to any number of things tonight, and I'd say, one, that God didn't mess up in bringing you to this point, but that secondly, it's okay to cry out to him and tell him that it's hard. The Psalms are full of cries for mercy and help. People who are content in God can and should cry out to their loving Heavenly Father. But lament becomes sinful discontent when we think God has got it wrong. Hand over your bitterness to your caring Father who never makes mistakes, who has ordained every one of your days. And I think nothing sums up the reality that God ordains and directs every one of our days like the Heidelberg Catechism. I think this is question and answer 21. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. Whether our difficulties are eased or increased, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. God never makes mistakes. We think we know better, but God really never makes mistakes. Every one of the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Yes, that's true of how works generally, but it is specifically true for the one person who guarantees that God really never makes mistakes and is always working for his people's good. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 2. Here Peter is addressing the crowd at Pentecost, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Did you hear that? They were wicked. 
God handed him over. Over a couple of pages in Acts chapter 4, we read this. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Are the people who crucified Jesus responsible for their evil? Yes. Did God intend this plan of salvation? Was it therefore something for good? Yes. How do these truths sit together? I don't know. But God has said it in his word. If I can't see how it works, then the problem is mine, not what God has said. In short, the greatest tragedy in human history was intended and purposed by God as humanity's greatest good. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not a mistake. In one sense, yes, he was the victim of evil men, and yet at one and the same time, he was God and the Son of God, whose perfect plan had been to crush him as a substitute so that we would not be crushed by the judgment of God. We look at the cross and we see how seriously God takes his sins. But I should say to you, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, then the cross of Jesus shows you that the comfort of Psalm 139 is not your comfort unless you repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus. God is all-knowing. If you're not reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus, that's terrifying. He knows everything about you. God cannot be escaped from because he's everywhere. If you're not reconciled to God, that is terrifying. You will not escape him at the last day. The cross shows you that God will not let your sin go unpunished. And Jesus is the only hope. Because for Christians, the cross secures and guarantees the truth that God will never make a mistake in your life. He will only ever work for your good in Christ because he ordained the cross. There, as Jesus suffered the agony of hell in the place of those who would trust in him, all of our sins, all of them, even the respectable ones, even the times we fail to be content and fail to stop worrying about the future, all of those sins were punished on Jesus instead of his people. It is not as though God looked at the cross and thought, whoops, what am I going to do now? God always intended this to accomplish salvation. And maybe you're wondering, what kind of God is God like? The God who is in control of everything, who ordains all these days, who is so powerful, who is so present, who is so knowing. What kind of God is he like? Can I trust him? Can I know that he loves? Can I know that he is good? He is the God of the cross. And if God didn't make a mistake here, he won't make a mistake in the smaller detail of your life. Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for his all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's people cannot look at the cross and conclude anything other than that God loves them 
and has their ultimate good at heart. We know God won't withhold anything good because he didn't withhold his own son. He can't make mistakes. Let the fear of God cast out all other fears. Look at the cross and have confidence that God really never makes mistakes. It will change your life. Amen.